welcome to Episode 8 of Hunting for Candlelands. I'm your host, Neil. This week we have an interview with Lady Lamb the Beekeeper, a.k.a. Allie Spaltrow. I spoke to her at the Magic Stick before her concert um, a few days ago. And then after that, we have more from Mike Schwartz on minimalism. And we'll finish this show off with a song from Lady Lamb the Beekeeper. So up first is my interview with Allie Spaltrow. I did the interview on the patio, the outdoor patio of the Magic Stick, because it seemed like the quietest place at the time. But it did seem like we got some wind sound in the background. And there was, I think my MP3 recorder is a little bit too sensitive because we banged our hands on the table and you can hear it um, in the recording. But you can... Read my article about the concert at herematagazine.com or see pictures of the concert at the Facebook page for Here Magazine. And without further ado, here's Lady Lamb the Beekeeper. Um, all right. You are originally from Maine. Yeah. That is correct. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, how? I'll bring you back. How, how were you introduced to music? Tell me about listening to music as a child. Well, my best friend was my next-door neighbor in Arizona, because I actually didn't move back to Maine until I was 14. Okay. My dad was in the military, so we moved around a lot. And when I was five in Arizona, my next-door neighbor was this, like, really uh, reserved, like, really smart, cool, like, 13-year-old girl who, like, loved the Beatles, and we became good friends, because I was a strange five-year-old, like, I, we just, like, got along well, and so I listened to the White Album with her all the time, (laughs) and became, like, obsessed, like, unhealthily obsessed with the Beatles, and also around that time, I, like, would go, I would, like, sit in my closet for fun, like, you know, kids, like, forts, I would, like, sit in my closet with a flashlight and, like, make mixtapes off the oldies radio, so I was really into, like, Supremes, Mostly just fifty scroll groups and like also like the Isley Brothers and you know whatever Otis Redding and um, Roy Orbison whatever whatever was on I loved it um, and there was a lot of my dad is a guitarist so there was a lot of music in my household even though I didn't learn until I was eighteen. When did you first learn that you could write songs and that you had the ability to write songs? Uh, I started writing at eighteen. Okay. And that's when he started learning guitar. Yeah. Okay. Um, your your bio talks about how you were uh, able to write and record in the basement of, of the DVD store um, you worked in, uh, and you were recording late into the night. Um, and I I don't know, just hearing the the album, I can hear sort of a late night introspection in a lot of the songs. But my question was, um, which of those songs that you were working on then ended up on the album later? I mean. How, how, which of the older songs, I would I guess? say, uh, Bird Balloons, uh-huh. the fourth track, um, uh, and then, let me think, I'm trying to think of the record in order. That's right. And then also the Crane Your Neck, which uh-huh. is like the ninth track, I think. Those were the two, like that were, those are the two super old ones. Okay. From being ni- like a nineteen, right. the other ones came later, but were all still written in the basement. Uh-huh. But those were the two like that have been around the longest. Right. A few of them have, were written like you know within the last year and a half. Yeah. And then a few in the interim, like when I was like in, like twenty one or. So. 
what would you say you were developing when you were working on your songs in the basement? Um, how did you change as a songwriter? What what were you doing, experimenting? Well, I was mostly interested in like the recorded song, so I cared about I cared about like the final product, not about performing it, just about layering it. That was what I was interested in was layering music and you had like an eight track. Yeah, and I was like I was really into bands that did that super like intelligently like I don't know like like bands like the fiery furnaces I felt like their arrangements I listened to a ton at the time and I thought that they were just like genius arrangers yeah. also up Montreal and even like cursive which I'd been listening to since I was like 12 this band on Saddle Creek out of Omaha like, like bright eye like from the bright eyes yeah. sector yeah. Um, just like really really interesting arrangements like all these little pieces in the panning I was super into like the, you know how things were just sort of woven and that's what I wanted to do I wanted right. to make songs like that and um, performing came later like maybe six months later and then I paired all the songs down and then I I didn't want to get pigeonholed as a young girl performer so I only played electric guitar gotcha. that was my way of trying to steer people away from calling me like a cutesy folk artist before they'd heard what I was doing sure um, yeah yeah um one thing I noticed about was your voice on the album, and that um, there's times when you do interesting things with your voice. You make you even let your voice sort of crack or be brittle in places. Um, I was uh, regarding ascending the stairs, particularly I noticed it on there, and I was I, I really like that because I find that um, often singers don't want to do that with their voice and make. Right. But I feel like that's a really good way to kind of get a get a feeling across. Yeah with your voice but my question was is that something have your vocal style has that developed is that something you've been working on or was there was, there, was anybody you emulated or did you take voice lessons or anything like no, that no I never had lessons never tried emulating anyone uh -huh. and the whole process of recording was really um, making decisions based on what was the most honest and earnest take and uh -huh. what I was what I could what I knew I was fully in best invested in and that's why you know, that's why, for instance, that the vocal on regarding ascending the stairs made it into the final. In fact, that song in particular, there was like a battle in me, and also my producer, who was constantly on the same page as I. We were just like very, we worked very well together, and we both were struggling between a really pristine, beautiful, clean take, a live take that of the vocal all the way through, and then the one where I break down in the song and crack and don't hit the note and have to compose myself. And we actually, like, for a good week, like, put it away, and we're trying to decide, well, what what goes into the record? We don't want to scare people, or we don't want to alienate people, but when, at the end of the day, we chose based on feeling and based on realness and, and decided to go with that. It thought it had much, much more uh, realness and yeah. character. Oh, definitely. Um, when did the live performance begin? Yeah. Uh, like six months after I started writing, uh -huh. I was sort of encouraged by my boss at the video store because he was the first person I shared songs with. And then um, started, I like did an open mic kind of situation. Uh -huh. And then um, that took a lot of courage. Like I really didn't want to do it. And then uh, and then I and then I eased into it. And then I had like my first little show in the winter in my hometown and like you know 11 people were there which was great <laughs> like it was my, mostly my family and friends and then I just got really I was comfortable doing it so I kept doing it yeah 
Um, when you decided to start using the Lady Lamb moniker, was it a deliberate attempt to create a musical persona besides your own identity as Allie? Or was there a reason behind not just using your name as, as yeah. the performer? It wasn't as conscious as that, honestly, at the time. The real, like, the, the initial reason why I used a moniker was because um, I, I worked at the video store and I wanted to share my music at the... I wanted to put free copies of my new, like, my first tracks at the record store, which my town was small enough, and I worked in the center of town, like on Main Street, and it was small enough that if I had put my name on the CDs, people knew, would know it was a girl at the video store. That was the real reason why it was to remain mysterious uh-huh. and anonymous. Honestly, it was like, I wanted to share it. I put my email, I put like the Lady Lamb, I made a Lady Lamb email, and I put that on the back in case anyone wanted to contact me. But this is my first time ever sharing the songs with strangers who were just picking it up for free. And, um... And actually, my uh, this is just an interesting side note. My friend TJ, um, who's playing bass on this tour, actually is one of the 11 people that picked up the CD. We met through him picking up the CD and became best friends. And he was actually we were a duo for a year and a half based on that. Um, so how did it come from handing out your, your, DVD, your CDs at the store to ultimately recording an album? I mean, where did you, how, when did the, when, what was the process from, from that to, to when you recorded the album? Uh, well, from that moment, which was 2007 to, you know, I recorded, I made my first studio album in 2012. So that was five years of making my own records at home. I made, I made, I can't think of it off the top of my head. I think six, maybe six albums, like on my own, like in in my room or in the video store, and just put them out myself. I made enough physical copies to to sort of disperse among the the record stores. Like there's this record store in Maine called Bull Moose Music, and I would like put my CDs in all the Bull Moose stores, like drive around the state and put them in all there and all the stores. But um. You know, it was a very natural process getting into the studio, like, spending five years doing that. I did it completely intentionally. Uh It was for no lack of, like, it was, I wasn't trying to get in the studio. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't trying and failing. I I waited on purpose because I didn't want to rush into it. And I honestly just, like, was happy playing these songs solo and handing out demos of them and stuff. And I wasn't quite sure how to wrap my head around building the songs bigger until I, until I was ready. I just wasn't ready until I was ready and then yeah. I went into then I just happened to find the perfect situation with my producer Nadim Isa. Right. Um, are those CDs that you those albums that you finished are those available or is that are they kind of not They're available digitally. Okay. But I don't make them anymore. I mean, uh-huh. I, I was hand making them. There was one right. record that you know, it came in an, in an envelope that was the size of a CD, but it was a paper envelope, and I wax sealed with with a flame every single one, nice. and burned my, the hell out of my hands, and like yeah. spent hours and hours and hours sealing these CDs myself. Like it was very time consuming. Yeah. And um, you can still get the songs, I just don't make them. I mean, I'm I'm sure that eventually I will re-release them physically. Right. Um. As a lyricist, would you say you're a confessional writer, or do you write about your personal experiences, or are you more of a storyteller? Both. I think the songs are really um, built around sort of a lot of streams of consciousness, so they're a little whimsical and metaphorical, and they're not completely autobiographical, because that would just be, I think that I would become really unhappy if I was being too personal all the time. 
I think a lot of artists that are too personal become unhappy. Yeah. Like they find they they suddenly find oh no I'm sharing too much of myself I'm too vulnerable shut down victimized you know whatever. So I just find poetic ways to say things that I think uh, a lot of people experience um, you know mundane things. Um. Okay, let's talk about the arrangements. What do you play on the album? Guitar, banjo? I play, I play all the guitar, which I think a lot of people would assume that I, I'm not ripping on the solos, but I am. <laughs> um, and all the noise, and I play the banjo, and I play bass on three songs, okay. on mezzanine, rooftop, and regarding ascending the stairs. And I play a lot of percussion, and um, auto harp, uh, microcorg, like a lot of odds and ends. And then I had a drummer and a bassist come in string players and horn players. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I really like the classical instruments. Um, oh, and then Nadine played all the keys. My producer played all the piano. Okay. How did you come up with the arrangements of the songs? Were they were a lot of them kind of what was in your head for a while with the songs? Was it something you worked, worked out in the studio? or? I think that was part of my fear of going into the studio was that I didn't have any arrangements written at all. I, I mean, oh, that's not true. I had demoed two songs in my apartment. Like, I demoed... Um, over the computer I demoed Rooftop and Mezzanine in fact the arrangements you hear on the finished album are pretty much to a T what I made in my apartment and I made it all with MIDI so it was like you know keyboard horns and keyboard strings and stuff but um, we just sort of replicated those those arrangements I made but every other arrangement was written in the studio and it was a painful yeah. process of, it was a challenge because a lot of these songs were had existed for years and I had to open my mind up enough to hear them differently and allow them to be really much bigger than they were used to being and that took a, that took a lot of patience and it was it uh, did you say it was a it sounded like a clarinet or a bassoon or something is that what it was on uh, I think on mezzanine yeah, yeah. Clarinet. clarinet yeah that, that sounds great um that's actually something I really love about the album is there's just so many sort of surprises. You know, the song will start off in one way and then switch, and, and I really enjoy that. Um, you used the line, okay, the line Ripely Pine comes from the Nothing Part 2, and you used it as the title of your album. Is there, is, if you can say, is there a reason why you picked that that part and said this is what um, I want to call the album? I had a lot of anxiety, like, through the year just in the back of my mind I think as some bands do by accident where they're like what am I going to name the record and it's just always looming like what is this album called and I think really really early on like maybe a couple months before I even started recording it Ripe Blue Pine was written down as like a possible and and it, it just sort of I didn't think about it at all it was just written down somewhere like I, I had the thought then I never revisited it and then I just found that it, I liked the ring to it and I I knew that probably people would mispronounce it and misspell it because it's made up. It's a made-up adverb. Okay. Um, but it doesn't bother me. Like, it's it's spelled wrong constantly, and I don't care. But, it, you know, it, to me, it sums up the album. Like, the album is full of pining. Right, to, to ripely pine, meaning, like, too long for something with a pulpy sort of heart. Kind of. That's what it means to me. I, I liked it because when I first heard it, I thought it was describing... Like pine, as in a tree, know, yeah. Which I also appreciate. Yeah. I like that double meaning because right. I am from the pine tree state, uh -huh. so I appreciate that that thought too. Right. Yeah, that's fine. I thought that, and then I thought, well, wait a minute, it's an ad adverb, so pine must be a verb. And yeah. So that yeah, and I think a lot of people miss that it's actually in the song, like that the line is in the song, and right. then maybe eventually they'll be like, oh, okay, I see. It, I get it in context. Right. But I like the idea that people think of a tree as well. That's oh, yeah. Fine. 
Um, your touring band, I have TJ Metcalf, Marco. Do you know Marco's last name? Buccelli. B-U-C-C-E-L-L-I. Okay. He's from Naples. Okay. And, um... I think that's that's roughly what I wanted to get from you. Um, is it all right if I take pictures during your set? Yeah. No, I won't use a flash or anything. Yeah, I don't mind. Okay. I'll just do it maybe during a couple songs. Sure. Um, I won't try to interrupt. And um, I think that's it. Um, you mentioned Frontier Ruckus. I love Frontier Ruckus. Uh, yeah. That's really yeah. cool. I'm yeah. A huge fan. yeah. I've, I've, I've known those guys for years and I love them. We've uh-huh. we got the, the chance to tour together. Oh, that would have been great. Um, what kind of music are you listening to now that you're excited about? Um, let me think. So, <clears throat> I'm really into just listening to things, especially on tour, listening to things that I, like old things that I like. Like, I've been listening to The Miseducation of Lauryn Hill a lot, and like, um, listening to, um, what else? Like, Joanna Newsom and Fiery Furnaces I'm revisiting, because TJ and I really connected years ago on that band. But the new band, not new, but, like, the band that I've been into lately for the first time is this band Active Child. Oh, I don't know that. Um, I really, I'm not sure where the guy's from, but it's this guy's project, and he's, like, he used to be in a children's choir when he was a kid, and, he's, and he has the most, like, beautifully, like, the most gorgeous voice, and he plays harp, but it's, like, un, like over beats and stuff. It's, like, it's really, it's, interesting, it's yeah. really interesting to me, like, really innovative to do it. Well, cool. Um, great. I think we're great. That, that should be... Uh... So that wraps up the interview. Thanks to Allie and thanks to Brian at Here Magazine and thanks to Patrick at Pitch Perfect PR for helping me set up that interview. Up next, we have more from Mike Schwartz on minimalism. I guess this is part three. I will say I edited his piece a little bit to include some audio clips from the music that he's talking about. I had shied away from doing that a little bit before, but now I thought, well, I'll just use um, use brief audio clips so that you can at least figure out you know, what we're talking about. Hello everyone, this is Mike Schwartz, and today I'm going to conclude my discussion of the musical genre known as minimalism. For the last two weeks, I looked at American minimalism, focusing on five or six composers who defined the movement. This week, I intend to discuss the European wing of the movement, known as mystic minimalism, and sometimes also known as holy minimalism with a look at several composers and a review of a choral performance that I recently saw in in a Seattle church featuring several of these composers. This will give me the opportunity to probe a little deeper into the roots and influences of minimalism in the classical music tradition and also in folk music from around the world. And I'll also provide a few more live concert reviews, including a live performance of Terry Riley's In C with the composer himself conducting at the unveiling of a new art installation in Seattle. But again, I'll first start with a quote. Music cannot exist without sound, but sound can exist without music. Thus it seems that sound is more important. You can consider sound to be a cosmic power that is the foundation of all. A sound is the very first movement of the unmovable. 
and this is the beginning of creation. Well, that quote is by Giacinto Scalzi, a composer and poet, and leads me into the discussion of mystic minimalism. So mystic minimalism is minimalist music with a religious thrust. It's the mystic wing of minimalism, and it was centered in Europe, uh, and it came slightly after the American version of minimalism, and was both less experimental than American minimalists, and also more of a product of the romantic tradition in European classical music. While the Americans looked at music from other cultures, mainly the Indian subcontinent, the mystic minimalists looked at the European music of centuries ago, including Gregorian chant and Renaissance vocal music, as well as the music of the Eastern Orthodox Church. However, the two mu musical movements known as minimalism were very similar in that both included drones and extreme repetition, chanting vocals, a combination of dissonance and consonance. And the mystic minimalists were actually inspired by both their American cousins and their European ancestors. So the mystic minimalists were all, and are still, and most of them are still alive, very religious, and they reached very far back into the Western classical music tradition in order to produce a similar religious effect in the listener. The mystic minimalists borrowed from Gregorian chants, uh, which produced kind of a trance-like and meditative effect on churchgoers who would hear this music. They also borrowed from the medieval organum, which featured a plain chant melody. That's the really old vocal tradition of chanting, uh, monophonic chanting, uh, with an additional voice added for harmony. It's called the medieval organum. And this had a similar effect as the Gregorian chants, um, as well as later Renaissance vocal music and repetitive rhythms of Baroque music, all of which would kind of create a hypnotic effect in the listener and was very really well um, suited for creating a spiritual state of consciousness for a religious audience. In general, these rhythms were also really easy for amateur musicians to memorize, and uh, because they produced an immediately hypnotic effect on the listener, they were very popular. And in fact, this repetitive, rhythmic, drone-like music became popular in spiritual music traditions of many different cultures. Uh, rhythmic repetitive music reached really le high levels of sophistication in a number of world cultures. Uh, name some examples, the Indonesian gamelan music, which I briefly mentioned uh, last week, Ghanaese drumming, which influenced Steve Reich, and uh, the Indian tabla, which influenced all of the minimalists, as well as the Japanese gagaku and African pygmy songs, to name just a few examples. Uh, most of these folk musics were not familiar to European composers uh, in the Romantic tradition, but gamelan from Indonesia was. Gamelan music is a traditional ensemble music, which is most often found on the islands of Java and Bali, and it features a variety of instruments such as metallophones, xylophones, kendang, which is kind of drums, 
gongs, bamboo flutes, and blowed and plucked strings with occasional vocals. You can find this music on YouTube, and uh, it it is very uh, similar to, to minimalism in its effect, just through uh, hypnotic kind of rhythms and repetitive motifs. Both Claude Debussy and Eric Satie first heard Gamelan music at the Paris Exposition of 1889. Uh, Debussy's Pagodes from Estampes, which is a solo piano piece from 1903, uh, has suggestions of bells and gongs and staccato rhythm, rhythms and a cyclical structure which makes it very much influenced by Gamelan. actually hear um, with Claude Debussy his pre-Gamelon pieces and his post-Gamelon pieces. There are quite a difference there. The repetitive hypnotic effects of Gamelon were also incorporated into Satie's Gnosien uh, piece for piano. Don't know, I don't think I'm pronouncing that right, but it's spelled G-N-O-S-S-I-E-N-N-E if you'd like to seek that out. And many minimalists, both American and Euro European, also list Debussy and Satie as as big influences on their music, and they also list gamelan mu music from Indonesia as influences. So it's an interesting confluence of of the European and world music, early world music, uh, and also a piece that I've always loved. Eric Satie's very famous Gymnopodies uh, compositions also sounds really much like a minimalist piece of music to me. So it's worth kind of dwelling a little bit on Satie because he was such an influence on the avant-garde musical scene that the minimalists were a part of. Extreme repetition can be found in many of his works, not just the ones I mentioned, but also Vexations, which was composed in 1893. And that entire work really just consists of a one-page score that instructs the musicians to repeat the theme 840 times. It consists basically of a short theme on the bass, with four iterations that are heard both unaccompanied and also played with chords above them. And the theme and the accompanying chords are used in a similar hypnotic effect as many, many later hip, uh, minimalist pieces. And I think, as I mentioned in the previous podcast, John Cage once held an infamous solo performance of Vexations that lasted all night.
So the mystic minimalists were Catholic in the lower C sense of the word, in the sense that they borrowed from both radical American avant-garde traditions, so Terry Riley, Steve Reich, Lamont Young, and conservative European romantic traditions as well, like WC and Satie and many, many others. Uh, you can hear it also influences in Ravel with Bolero, the repetitive rhythms there, and even Wagner. Uh, and they did this to produce a hypnotic and trans transcendent religious effect on the listener. Uh, and they weren't all, they weren't all Catholic with a capital C. Uh, Henrik Goretzky, famous, uh, European mystic minimalist, was Catholic, but Arvo Part and John Tavener were Eastern Orthodox, and many of the North European composers were Protestant. Uh, mystic minimalism, it should be noted, came to the attention of the world with Henrik Goretzky's Symphony Number no. 3, or the Symphony of Sorrowful Songs, which became a massive surprise hit in 1976. It's still one of those rare classical releases to actually cross over on the musical charts. So now I'd want to get into the live review part of the podcast. And I recently attended an amazing choral performance that featured the work of many of these mystic minimalists and served to kind of stoke my interest in the genre itself. The performance was by the Bird Ensemble, which is a Seattle group that usually focuses on Renaissance and early art music. On February 8th, they presented a program called Mystic Minimalism, Goretzky Part Tavener at the Trinity Parish Church, Seattle's oldest Episcopal church. The Bird Ensemble, which features four sopranos, two altos, two tenors, and four bass singers, uh, performed eight choral works by Henrik Goretzky, Arvo Park, and John Tavener, composed mostly in the 1980s and 90s. And the ensemble performing, they performed in the sonorous acoustic space of the church, created this serene meditative music, which affected me for hours afterwards, it was really under its spell. And I hadn't really been familiar with this music. I was mostly familiar with uh, these composers uh, for the, from their orchestral works and, of course, the other minimalist music that I discussed earlier. Uh, but I had not heard any anything like this kind of choral music produced by the human voice alone. Although there was one piece I was familiar with, Arvo Part's I Am the True Vine, uh, which I really loved uh, beforehand on a, on a part CD that I had and hearing it in the church was amazing. It created a real magical blend of rising and falling voices out of a simple biblical text. Many of the um, pieces that I heard, all of them, I think, or most of them were consisted of biblical text that just was brought to life by the voices.
So the concert began and ended with two pieces by Henryk Goretzky. Uh, he's a Polish composer from the industrialized Silesian region of Poland and began his career producing experimental dissonance music. I actually lived in the region of Poland uh, where he comes from, and his early music seems to reflect that kind of industrial wasteland of, of Upper Silesia, that part of Poland. Uh, but Goretzky eventually moved to the rural mountainous region of Podhale in the Tatra Mountains. And when he did, his style transitioned to a warmer, kind of more consonant and pared down minimalist style. I also spent a lot of time in the Tatra Mountains when I lived in Poland. And from listening to Goretzky's later music, it's clear how much he draws from the folk music of the Podhale region. And it's, it's also clear how much he draws from Polish religious music, which also involves very slow tempos and repetition of motifs and strong contrast in musical dynamics, all of which would become hallmarks of minimalism. As I mentioned earlier, Gretzky's most popular and famous work is the Third Symphony, which is otherwise known as the Symphony of Sorrowful Songs. It was released to commemorate the victims of the Holocaust. And fitting for its subject, it is, it's one of the saddest pieces of music ever composed, certainly one of the saddest pieces I've ever heard, which kind of makes it all the more surprising that it actually reached number six on the charts and sold over a million copies. Or maybe not, since a lot of songs of sorrow and sad songs have occupied the charts. So the Bird Ensemble opened the concert with Goretzky's Totus Tus, which translates roughly as I am completely yours, Mary. It is a musical prayer composed for Pope John Paul II's third visit to Poland in 1987. And it's a simple prayer for such a momentous occasion, which kind of summarizes the best aspects of minimalism's simplicity. And the Bird Ensemble later concluded the concert with another Goretzky piece called Amen, which is another really perfect minimalist little song. Amen consists of just this one word sung beautifully, and it's an early choral piece by Goretzky. It was written for the Poznan Music Festival in 1975. The next three performances we heard at this show were uh, compositions by Arvo Part, who's probably the most famous of the mystic minimalists. Part is from Estonia. He emigrated to Berlin in 1980 to escape the Soviets, but he returned years later, and now he lives in, in Tallinn and Berlin. <clears throat> He part is influenced by Schoenberg's 12-tone technique and also the classical music tradition of serialism, which directly preceded minimalism. He studied choral music from the 14th to the 16th centuries, and this combined with Renaissance vocal music influenced his third symphony and pretty much everything that came after it. I think part is most famous for the Tintinabuli style he created. And tintinabuli means bell-like. It involves a limited number of harmonies and is similar to other modal music, such as as well as medieval music. It's called tintinabuli because it involves the constant sound of an unchanging single triad, which is similar to how a bell continues to ring long after the note has been sounded. The first part piece we heard was The Woman with the Alabaster Box which featured a text from the Gospel of St. Matthew about a woman anointing Jesus with rich oils.
This piece is a great introduction to the Tintinabuli style because it involves musical textures that feature consonant anchor tones, which are set against melodic lines that kind of move in alternating states of very warm consonants combined with uh, kind of colorful and impactful dissonance. And the singing didn't, to me, sound like much like a bell, but it did seem to have a delicate ringing quality to it. So after this, um, we heard parts I Am the True Vine, which was composed for the 900th anniversary of the Norwich Cathedral. The amazing thing about I Am the True Vine is how that this Tintinabuli style is adapted. So the syllables of the text are dispersed in such a way that the singers actually complete each other's sentences. Uh, it really seems really difficult to perform. I mean, it's like constantly moving parts with one singer starting a line, the other finishing or, or put doing the middle section and a third finishing the line. Uh, and the bird ensemble really nailed it when we saw them. It worked beautifully in the acoustics of the church as well. And the male and female voices seem to overlap in the resuscitation of the text. Uh, from, and it comes from John 15, which is the same speech where Jesus uses the metaphor of the many mansions within the father's house. And next up was Arvo Part's Magnificat, or The Song of Mary, uh, which is one of the most serene and austerely beautiful compositions I've ever heard. The singing is, spo is supposed to express the delicate and tender joy of the Virgin Mary, and it's very lyrical. He didn't compose this, but he set an existing song using the Tintinabuli style and also using drones. And it, it's really the style at its most refined. The solo soprano part is in the pitch of C, and it's at the center of the performance. Uh, Theater of Voices director Paul Hillier said of the piece that it's full of shimmering dissonances that lends itself well to the kind of contemplation and introspection suggested by the text, which is actually a nice description of much mystic minimalism itself. So next, the Bird Ensemble turned to a, a British composer, John Tavener. Tevener was first brought to prominence by the Beatles. John and Ringo actually heard his music and brought him in to record The Whale for Apple Records. He later converted to Orthodox Christianity and to minimalism as his chosen musical genre, and he combined both of these in his religious music. Prayer for the World may be his most well-known composition. There's many, I'm sure many of you have heard that. But Two Hymns to the Mother of God, which the Bird Ensemble performed, is also quite well-known. And two, hymn, two Hymns to the Mother of God was written in tribute to his own mother, who had recently died. It is a mix of Renaissance and Russian and Byzantine music, and it features a chorus that repeats a few beats behind the melody, uh, creating kind of a mystical texture where the harmonies are blurred together. The second hymn is an adaptation of a well-known Orthodox hymn. And the Bird Ensemble also performed Tavener's Song for Athena, which was my second favorite uh, performance of the night, next, next to parts I Am the True Vine. It's really stunningly beautiful, and it's an elegy composed after Tavener left the funeral of a family friend. It combines lines from Hamlet with words from the Orthodox litur liturgy, which is set to a chant over a vocal drone. The repetition of the Alleluias uh, was absolutely mesmerizing to me. And the whole thing kind of has a fragile, shimmering beauty to it. It's also now very, very famous after being performed at Westminster Abbey during the funeral service of Princess Diana in 1997.
So as I mentioned earlier, the concert ended with Goretzky's Simple Amen, which was a beautiful way to end. And the show also consisted of Gregorian chants like Ave Maria Stella from the 9th century and Salve Regina, a sung prayer. And those pieces really fit in well with the minimalist theme, especially since the, these the mystic minimalists really drew from Gregorian chants, an ancient song. A month and a half after this performance of the Bird Ensemble, on March 24th, I got a special treat. I got to see Terry Riley himself conduct a performance of In C with 35 musicians from the Seattle Symphony Orchestra and the larger Seattle music community. This included several performers who played on the original performance of In C in 1964. The performance of this piece, which is the most famous of all minimalist compositions, occurred outside of the Seattle Art Museum for the unveiling of a new visual art exhibit called Mirror by Bruce Aitken. Mirror is described as, quote-unquote, a kind of living kaleidoscope that monitors changes in Seattle Art Museum's immediate vicinity through digital sensors that pick up weather information, pedestrian activity, traffic density, and other things in the local area, which then triggered LED images on this large LED screen that wraps around the northwest side of the building um, that are images drawn from hundreds of hours of digital footage that Aitken shot in Seattle and in the northwest. Really, really unique. Uh, and at the unveiling of Mirror, the assembled crowd gathered on the street to hear this performance by Terry Riley that would then itself trigger the choreography of Mirror on the screen. This really promised to be a unique event. The performance began with a version of Steve Reich's clapping music, with nine of the musicians standing at the front of the makeshift stage, all clapping their hands in rhythm. Uh, if you've heard the original of this piece, it's really only for two clappers. Mirror hadn't yet been unveiled, and after this, and after speeches by the mayor and other assorted dignitaries, Terry Riley took the stage behind a customized keyboard for a performance of the groundbreaking piece in C. And along with him was the Seattle trombonist Stuart Dempster and Theater of Eternal Music violinist Tony Conrad, both of whom played on the original performance of C. NC is always a fascinating piece to hear in performance, especially as conducted by the composer. And the reason it's so fascinating is that, like Satie's Vexations, the score consists of only one page. There is no specified instrumentation. There are 53 motives, mostly very short, and there's no specified length or form to the piece, really leaving all this up to the performers and the conductor. And here I would see Riley himself making those decisions and leading the orchestra. So I was really excited. Like minimalist music, Bruce Aitken uh, intended for his exhibit to be timeless and constantly changing at the same time. And that was my impression of it. Aitken calls it a living kaleidoscope, a dynamic representation, uh, this isn't him quoting, but me, of the constantly changing environment that makes up Seattle and the Northwest. Uh, the images concluded hundreds of hours of footage and surfaces, locations, textures, landscapes, all reduced to their essence to create a living exterior. 
the images kind of compose themselves before your very eyes based on the movement and the conditions outside of the museum. Once the performance began, the images that I recall seeing consisted of trees, water, sun, ships on water, pedestrians walking on streets, the monorail, building facades, glass towers, parking lots, boat moors, tree canopies, and highways. The images were in color and were black and white, and sometimes they blended together in a kaleidoscopic effect. The images sometimes fit perfectly with the music, such as when Stuart's trombone began a solo which caused the sensors to trigger images of fluttering branches shaking in time with the trombone's notes. Stabbing strings of the violins and violas brought on images of huge tree trunks. And keyboard crescendos produced shimmering waterscapes, while horns brought on images of Seattle's industry, the busy port, a Boeing plant, and the viaduct. Some of the most transcendent passages resulted in images of Washington's most famous mountains, glaciers, and volcanoes. As the sun went down behind me, the change in light triggered the images of a sun setting on the LED screen, for the first time literally reflecting the exhibit's name. At this point, Terry rose from his seat at the keyboard, lifting his arms repeatedly, commanding the music to rise up and then descend back down. As he continued to do this, the images shuttled between cars on a highway and a flaming sun on the horizon. Eventually the, the piece reached its crescendo, the actual sun and its mirror image both descended past the horizon, and the performance was over. So I'll post a montage of this performance from YouTube uh, and the mirror exhibit on my Twitter site, Mike at Happy Wanderer 13. But if you're interested in seeing other live footage of Riley, you can also check out Music with Roots in the Ether which is a series of video portraits that Robert Ashley made of various modern composers. The Terry Riley piece features an hour interview followed by an hour of Riley playing Shri Camel on his Yamaha keyboard outside his Sierra Nevada ranch. The idea of a marriage between visual artists and musicians isn't new, but did kind of reach an unprecedented level with the minimalists. So that this pairing of Bruce Aitken and Terry Riley is a continuation of a long tradition. And minimalism in music and the visual arts were actually parallel movements. Although the musical movement came a little bit later, the artists and musicians did know each other well, they were, they were friends, and they often studied together, and occasionally they created work together. Minimalism as an art term was first coined in 1965 by critic Richard Wolheim to describe the work of artists like Frank Stella, Donald Judd, Robert Morris, Ellsworth Kelly, Barrett Newman, and many others. The work of Lamont Young and Terry Riley seems to me like an aural equivalent to Mark Rothko's huge you know, bands of color on his canvases or Ad Reinhardt's black canvases. Both minimalisms seem to look at the busyness of the world around them and turn away from it, embracing simplicity, slower paces, unfolding developments, and layers of sound and paint, as well as plenty of silence or space between the notes and the images. Okay, so switching gears, um, talking more about other 
live performances, Terry Riley isn't the only minimalist who I've seen perform live. I was also fortunate enough to see Meredith Monk at the Bumbershoot Festival in Seattle way back in 2005. She sang and played piano with two other singers and performed many of her most famous pieces, including Gotham Lullaby, Last Song, Hip Stance, and Boatman. Remember how her lovely soprano filled the hall, combined with her usual assortment of yelps, yips, cries, sighs, screams, whoops, and warbles, mixing folk and indigenous music into this wonderful new vocal art music that I'd never heard before. You can also see footage of Meredith Monk performing in Peter Greenaway's Four Composers documentary series, which first air, <clears throat> first played on, <clears throat> excuse me, first played on Channel Four in 1983, and also. Um, featured episodes on performances by Philip Glass, Robert Ashley, and John Cage. The performances, uh, all of the performances in the Peter Greenaway documentary series were taken from the New York Almeida Festival in London, and the Meredith Monk segment focuses on her cinematic approach to staging and choreography and includes many clips of Monk's performances as well as clips from her films Ellis Island and Book of Days. She talks extensively in the film about her art, and we get to see a lot of Dolman music, which is a, a, a album that she composed that describes that she describes as having an ancient and futuristic feeling at the same time. Dolman music was inspired by a visit to an ancient and mysterious druidic rock compound in Brittany, and she sings on this album as if in an ancient foreign tongue. Uh, in this uh, documentary film that Peter Greenaway made, she also performs Traveling and Biography from the opera The Education of a Girl Child, which I also got to see her perform at Bumbershoot in Seattle. The opera Education of a Girl Child presents a backwards journey through a woman's life. It's kind of like Martin and Mrs. Time's Arrow that way. And it starts with a dying, her dying vocal refrain and then moves backwards as an old woman's voice transforms to a youthful girl looking back on her life all the way to her childhood. It's a really beautiful piece of music, and it's also famous because DJ Shadow sampled it for introducing. There's a lot more of Monk on the internet, and there's also a full-length documentary film on her called Inner Voice. Uh, Peter Greenaway's documentary on the Philip Glass performance is actually better than the Glass film of, of a few years ago, and features intimate conversations with him and members of his band, like saxophonist and all-around reed man John Gibson and singer Dora Orenstein. 
These performers discuss the short range of notes in Glass's pieces, which lends his music a haunting quality, and how he can make six to seven instruments have the impact of a 50-piece orchestra. And Philip Glass also talks a lot about his mentor, Ravi Shankar, in the film. Much of the film also features Philip Glass, the Philip Glass Ensemble in performance, including pieces like Music in Similar Motion, Facades, and Flow, with incredible work, uh, vocal work by Dora Orenstein, especially on the latter piece, Flow, where she really lets it all out and explores the highest register. And also on the extended piece, Train Spaceship, from Einstein, Einstein on the Beach. These were all performed at the Sadler's Wells Theater in London as part of that New York Almeida Festival. So one more film to mention before I finish, and that would be Bjork's short film on the Magic Minimalists. It's actually called Magic Minimalists, which you can find on YouTube. And the short, this short film features Bjork narrating and interviewing four musicians who specialize in space and acoustics and could generally be grouped as contemporary minimalists. Several of them are from Finland and live in Barcelona. The film also features some great images of Gaudi's architecture, which fits the music quite well. And the subjects include Alastair Malloy. He plays drinking glasses, which is interesting. Bjork actually requests Mozart, and he's able to play a full Mozart piece on drinking glasses. Features Mika Vanio. Uh, he plays feedback and electronics with this kind of bizarre cigar box contraption that he invented. Tommy Grunlund, which uh, who plays uh, a special musical instrument that he created made of sensors that detect movement, uh, kind of like mirror a little bit, which send signals that create vibrations in wires and kind of set those wires. Uh, to music by creating uh, vibrations in percussion instruments. This is actually really similar to Lamont Young's Dream House, which, which had a similar thing with sine waves. And then also Arvo Part is featured in this film as well. Um, he's yeah, performing a number of pieces like Canticle for Benjamin Britten and Miserere. And he talks about some interesting things like music's power to kill and how music can also be the opposite of killing. And he humorously responds to a very strange Bjork observation comparing his music to Pinocchio and the cricket. So, very, very funny. Um, I guess on that note, I'll stop. That's really it for minimalism. Thank you all for bearing with me over these past three podcast episodes while I've had a chance to go into some depth around minimalism. It's really been a blast for me as I've kind of discovered more of this music along with you. And I hope that uh, you also dig deeper 
and discover the many amazing, amazing works in minimalism. And to help you do so, I have put together three Spotify playlists. First time I've, I've used Spotify to put together playlists. And as a mixtape freak, I had a great time doing it. So just go to Spotify if you have an account. And if you don't, super easy to open one. And search under Mike's Minimalist Playlist. Part one is focusing mostly on the American minimalists. Part two, looking at the holy or mystic minimalists. And part three is looking at the long history or prehistory of minimalism uh, with works like uh, Eric by Eric Satie um, and others, as well as John Cage. And it looks at the post-history of minimalism as well in terms of influences on groups like the Velvet Underground and The Who and other of groups that you all know quite well, I'm sure. Uh, film soundtracks as well also feature some film soundtracks there and definitely do check out my twitter account it's mike at happy wanderer 13 i'll have lots of video and links to articles and other things all around minimalism thank you all and enjoy your minimalist explorations Thanks, Mike. And uh, the pieces that we used in there, we used excerpts from Introitus from the album Gregorian Chants. Also, music from Bali, Gamelan Digung, you heard Sankala. Claude Debussy, um, performed by Noriko Ogawa, you heard Pagodas. And Eric Satie, Vexations, performed by Jérôme Von Veen. Also in there, Arvo Part, I Am the True Vine, performed by Paul Hiller. And from the Gorecki section, you heard Symphony of Sorrowful Songs uh, with Zofia Kilanowitz, soprano. Uh, the Bird Ensemble was actually in there. I extracted that from YouTube. That was Woman with the Alabaster Box. And you also heard um, John Tavener, Song for Athena, and that was actually from Diana's Funeral. Steve Reich's Clapping Music and Terry Riley and C both performed at the Seattle Art Museum. Uh, Meredith Monk, Gotham Lullaby, Philip Glass, Train Slash Space, and um, there's a little excerpt there from Bjork's Modern Minimalism Music, the, the guy playing the glass, the glasses there. So thanks again, Mike, and there'll be more fun stuff from Mike next week, I'm sure. Well, that pretty much will do it for this episode of Hunting for Candle Lens. We do have a song coming up from Lady Lamb the Beekeeper. Uh, be sure to tune in next time. It should be, if things work out right, an all-Australia episode. I have an interview lined up, or I've already done the interview, and I'll, with Atlas Genius. So look forward to that, and have a good one. This is Lady Lamb the Beekeeper with The Nothing Part 2 off of Ripley Pine. <laughs> Mistaken thing that you may rightly find 
your own devices and to exhaust it to know what you want I know I Feel it. 